0: The scripture for today's message comes from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. It's Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews?
1: morning everybody it's good to see you and it's good to worship with you and now it's really good that we get to spend time in the word together we are on matthew the second sermon series in this sermon series um sermon in the sermon series and uh like i said last week when we go through the book of matthew it's easy to kind of just say um you know what it's kind of like Christmas. I've heard this all my life, but one thing that we want to do is let's get all our preconceived notions about what we think this is, and then let's really just dive into the Word for what it is, and really look into what Matthew is saying in uh, this gospel. So as we do that, let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would clear our minds and our hearts. The things that we have seen, the things that we have been influenced by that are not of you. We ask that it will be filtered so that our spirits and our minds could be clear to hear your word today. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Again, we just want to say, let's move away from the familiar, fuzzy, warm kind of feelings that you may have. This uh, passage that was read is probably one of the most... Uh, familiar Christmas passages that you might have um, heard growing up, if you grew up in the church, and if not, then it's about three wise men. You may have heard that, and more recently now people are saying, oh, it wasn't three wise men, it's just we don't know. And so the answer, honestly, is we don't know who they are. Um, but they are wise men, or a.k.a. magi, and these are people that we're going to be talking about here. But I'm going to go through three points, and the three points are Lord of all, the throne, the worship. You would have, I think you all have this insert. I'll just repeat it one more time. The reason why we go through the three points and that's there for you is to take notes, you write it down, And I'm encouraging families to kind of go in and worship together. When you worship together, you could go through the three points, review the message, sing the final song that you see in the back of that handout insert, and then have a family worship. If you are single, it doesn't mean you shouldn't have family worship. You could either join with the people that are around you, your roommates, your parents, your brothers, sisters, whoever it is, and have this family worship. If you don't have that opportunity, I will go on to add that you know what? You have a family right next to you. Ask somebody next to you, say, like, "Hey, let's go through this review, and let's worship together just once a week." I think this is a really good opportunity for us to kind of build on this uh, midweek kind of getting together, reviewing what we learned on Sunday. But I think it's such a healthy thing for us to do spiritually, which we'll get into a little bit later. But the first point, Lord of all, uh, when we ended last week's message, uh, we went over the name of Jesus Christ, did we not? We went through Yeshua, Yeshua, and we went to Yeshua, right? Yeshua, Yeshua means um, God saves, right? And so we're, we're saying Shua. so Yoho, yoh, yoh, meaning Yahweh, God, Shua will save, right? And so... The name that we went over is Yeshua will save. So who saves? Yeshua, which means God saves. So is God saves, or is it God saves is going to save? And we said the answer was yes. The answer is yes. Is it is it God saves, or is it that God saves saves? The answer is yes. And then we went even further and we said the second name that we see saw in the end of chapter one was Emmanuel. Where well, we get uh, our now now it's changed to the letter E because of the Greek language but Emmanuel meant God with us which pointed all the way back to the tabernacle where God wanted to go with his people and Jesus was the fulfillment of what the tabernacle was symbolizing we got that all from chapter one but one thing that I did go over was Yeshua for he will save what was the next line for he will save his people from their sins you say who are his people And there was a genealogy before, right? We went over that. There was a whole genealogy before. So the question that we want to ask now is, we saw, yes, God is going to save. Jesus, who is God saves, is going to save what? Save his people. From what? Their sin. Who is his people? go all the way back to the Abrahamic lineage, right? Abraham going down from Isaac to Jacob to Judah, going all the way down. And then we would see, oh, it must be the Jewish people because the Jewish people are the recipients of this letter or gospel. And then right on the turn, the next page, when we're thinking this, Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus is going to save his people, and God is with us, meaning his people who are his people? It must be the Abrahamic lineage. That's what you are thinking. That's how we started. And then immediately when you turn the page, because these stories are connected, you would see something a little intriguing. Who are the characters in the story? It's the Magi. Are the Magi Jewish? Are the Magi part of the Israel nation? Were they Jews? The answer is no. The Magi were a people From the east, according to this gospel, there are people, wise men from the east, and they saw this special star. What we understand about the Magi is they were astrologers, they were experts in astrology, which, once again... This is something that the Jewish people did not appreciate. They did not like this because they did not worship the stars. They weren't into Greek mythology last week, right? But this week, they didn't worship the stars. So these are people who loved astrology. They were the people that would be like, oh, you are a Sagittarius? I don't know. Is that, is that a thing? Or Scorpio? I don't know. So oh, They would be studying all these constellations and the stars. And all of a sudden, a star would come out. And mind you, scholars have looked into this, and they said, actually, there were multiple accounts of a supernova a comet Halley, and all these um, heavenly bodies, uh, something going on around the time of Jesus' birth. So people are like, oh, I guess that's kind of plausible. The thing that really gets them is, how did this star move? It's like, that's, that's just, we don't understand that part. That makes, we can't have, we don't have any science to explain how a star will move. In fact, stars... Don't move, and especially if you... You know, in this passage, we saw the star would land on top of where Jesus was. So that's kind of weird. So people were really struggling with this. So scientists, scholars were like, this couldn't have happened. This was probably just kind of superstition or something like that. But then they would look at every single other historical aspect about Herod the Great or Herod the King who was in here. About Bethlehem at that time. About what he did. About magi coming from the east. Was that a regular thing? are all these things fit? historically, they were not just plausible, they were very likely. And then when they put that together, just the star didn't make sense. It's like, oh, I wish the star wasn't there. And I got to think, maybe Matthew thought that too. Man, I wish the star wasn't there. Because I'm Jewish. I'm a Jew. I believe in the Hebrew scriptures. This is not what we believe. Why would he put that there? Unless, unless it actually happened. There was an event that you couldn't explain that was coming to just a physical manifestation and people just couldn't get it and it wasn't three wise men or kings that we might have sang about when i was a little kid my mom made me and my other two male cousins sing this old song uh hymn we three kings of orient are right? and then i realized later i was just singing a fake song it's not even real so Uh, We would sing that in church, but uh, these, so what most likely probably happened, this event happened, and imagine people who were studying stars, mind you, you got to start putting these puzzle pieces together, who studying stars that don't believe in God, would recognize this, and for some reason, they recognized this to be a star that pronounced the king of the Jews would be coming. Now, that's amazing. This is how much they studied the stars so much, and... uh, thoroughly that they like, this is such a special start in an event, and now it's leading us somewhere. We got to go. So they take this caravan. They take this whole entourage of magi, or maguses, right, magi, or, or wise men, and go and follow the star. We have to figure out what this is about. And so when they start going, they end up going to uh, where Herod was, because the star stopped leading them, so they're like, oh, where do we go? We know it's this way, so they obviously went to the king. The king should probably know. And so what the, magi do, what the magi do is they do something pretty amazing if you think about it. These are people that had no idea what the scriptures were. They had no idea about Jewish heritage. They didn't know anything about like, the Torah. They didn't study it. They didn't follow it. Most likely, they weren't even rich. They were just advisors to someone rich or a king, most likely. And so they would gather not, so we saw later, they gave gold frankincense and myrrh. So they even prepared gifts. So they knew, they got together. This is something amazing. We got to prepare gifts. So they knew something about it. And if you think about it, why does Matthew immediately go and talk about the Magi? And Matthew is showing us something. He's put these two together because they were they happened, but he put these two together and we see that there is a picture being shown. This Savior, this Mashiach, this Christ has come to save his people. Who are his people? Who are God's people? Is it just the Jewish nation? And the answer we see here, God's people are people that God himself calls. God calls God's people. You are here because God has called you. He has taken your heart captive and brought you here to love and learn about the word of God. And when the word of God is preached and read and studied, something inside you is ignited. And you start loving. And then you start seeing the majesty of our Lord and Savior and King. And you're like, oh my God, he is worthy of worship. Let me prepare my gifts. Let me prepare all that I have and bring it to this house where he is. And this is what's happening to the Magi. And we see this picture. It's not just now a Jewish religion only. This is about the Judeo-Christian God who is claiming lordship over all the earth, saying, who I call are my people. And so he calls the Magi. There are actually two basic characters or parties here that we are to look at. And so when they come, The star kind of disappears. They don't know where it is. So they go to where uh, Herod is. And they go to Jerusalem, which is the capital, right? So uh, obviously, we should go to the king where he is. And then this is what they say in verse 2. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? This is really, really awesome. Because they don't go, where is he who will be the king? You see what's happening? They go to the actual king who is sitting on the throne. And they go, where is he who is born king? That means he's already king. Where is the king? Where is the real king? And they're saying it to the king who's sitting. So now there's something that's going to develop. This is bigger than any children's story that you could imagine. And something is going to start twisting and turning. Who is God? God is Lord of all. And so when this happens, um, Herod goes oh where's the king you say and he does something what does he do after hearing this he was troubled and it also says and all jerusalem with him everybody there is like what is this caravan who are these people and what are they talking about And in verse 4, he assembles all the chief priests and scribes of the people, people that are. So he had this like impromptu gathering, emergency meeting, guys. Emergency meeting. We gotta get together. And he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. This is why we know the Magi weren't Jews because they didn't know. But apparently everybody, and if you look at John chapter 3, everybody knew this messianic promise and prophecy that was about to play, and they were waiting for, and he asked where the Christ would be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This is really interesting what's going on here because there's nowhere in the Bible that has this exact phrasing. It doesn't. So you're like, why did did Matthew specifically, is he paraphrasing here? What is he doing? And I think he's doing something incredibly brilliant that we have to understand. So if you understand the the Hebrew scriptures, you will see the beginning is exactly like Micah chapter 5 verse 2. And when you read Micah chapter 5 verse 2, it's exactly this. However, this fourth line is not in Micah chapter 5 verse 2. Where is it from? It's actually from 2 Samuel. Uh, chapter 5, verse 2. It's really interesting. Verse 5, verse 2, 5, verse... Eight, but I'm sure they, because verses came out way later, that's not what they meant. It just so happens. So 2 Samuel, verse 5, verse 2, when they were talking about anointing David the king, he this last line is there. So when Matthew is saying, for it is written by the prophet, this is what the people, the Jewish people understood. They understood the prophets to be this one voice proclaiming and declaring, prophesying... This is what the Messiah will be. And so he puts these two together because 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 2, that they used to anoint David the king was pointing to Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 was also referring back to 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 2. And then Matthew picks up on this and he points it out. This is actually what the chief priests and scribes of the people and the people that studied the word understood this to be. The Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. And in Bethlehem, there will come a ruler who will shepherd the people of Israel. And this is what happened. People of Israel, but then we see that the magi come into play. And so who is God Lord of? We see God. God is using this story, his redemption story, to come all the way down. And it's going to play out all through the book of Matthew. But he's pointing it out right here. He's, he's preparing the reader. Get ready. Get ready because this gospel is a gospel for all people. This gospel is good news for everyone who will open their ears and obey and follow the leading of where the Lord is going to lead them, the throne. Who was on the throne? Herod was on the throne. Herod was troubled. And so who was Herod? Herod was also known as Herod the Great, and he ruled Palestine on behalf of Rome. Mind you, this is when the Roman Empire existed. They had most of the world. And Herod the Great, this king, was installed in Palestine, and he was an Edomite, if you don't know what that is, we go all the way back to our Genesis learning. Edomite were the descendants of Esau. And Esau was the brother of Jacob. And God is the one that said, I have loved Jacob and hated Esau. Jacob is the one that he chose. And Esau was the one that will be punished. In fact, it says in the Bible, Edom will be punished. And so he's part of this kind of tribe. His first 24 years... He was amazing. That's why he was called Herod the Great. He established peace throughout all of Palestine. He made a temple which people recall was even more magnificent than Solomon. That's crazy, right? He provided jobs for the working class. He completed a large number of projects that Jesus will eventually talk about too, that we see here. But however, the final nine years were tumultuous, they were rough. And they were characterized by uh, political, not just intrigue, but executions, familial disputes like families, infighting, war, and clashes with Rome. And so Herod eventually died dishonorably, so much so that the Roman Empire divided his kingdom um, or that, that Palestine among his sons. So that's why you will see like Pontius Pilate will come in and all these. So politically, all these things are taking place while Jesus is born. And so it's actually understandable why Herod might be a little concerned because he understands that he's an Edomite. And if he read Malachi chapter 1 verse 14, he knows he doesn't have long, especially if this is a prophecy that's coming true. And he was a Roman appointee. That means He didn't get appointed by the Davidic claims to the king dynasty. He took it from a secular place. So now he's just, you know, oh my goodness, it's shaking. So the last nine years of his life were bad. Um, It's the question that we have to also understand. There are two parties here, and there's a contrast being drawn. There is a throne, and someone's going to come and claim it. That's kind of crazy if you think about it. There is a throne and someone's going to come and claim it. You could have done some amazing things in your life. You could have had amazing accomplishments. For 24 years, you could have made the temple better than anyone ever could have made, right? You're an elder here in this church. You could make CGS better than any other second-generation Korean-American church to have ever existed. 24 years, we build it. And then, boom, like, I want some credit. Call me Sung the Great or Jubin the Awesome or something to that effect, right? And call me this, and then I get this name. And then you're like, "My, my time is almost up. What happens? What happens when your time is almost up? No matter how great you are, what we understand is our time is coming. It's gonna come when our time is, it's ended. And then what happens? If I continue to sit on my own throne all the time, meaning if I am in control of my life all the time for the rest of my life, meaning no one else can control my life. I am in control of my life. What is happening here? We see some incredible things happening. We see a lot of insecurities start to come up because when I'm sitting on the throne, when I want to be in control, I want this. So even as a pastor, I could be like, I want CGS to be like this. I grew up learning this in my church. I saw what happened in my father's church, so we're never going to do that. And I start putting in my own input. I want my own throne. I want control over my own life and everything in my power. We see horrific things happen throughout history. The more power someone had, the more horrific acts would happen, no matter how good uh, of kind of accomplishments they did. Think of every despot. You think they got there just by being a despot, let me just kill people? They did it because they started like, rallying people. They had amazing speeches. They would like, say, I'm going to build the economy better. I'm not talking about today. I'm talking about like, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 1,000 years ago. People were doing that. And then what happens? The more power they had, they wanted to still sit on the throne. But they knew something that we also have to recognize. A time is coming when the time is up. And we have to give an account. And no matter what we did, it won't measure up. It won't measure up. A time is coming when someone true that measures up will take the throne. What are we going to do? So when Jesus, the announcement of Jesus comes, Herod is understandably very concerned and troubled. In fact, in the Bible it says he was troubled and so he assembled all the people people that he could ad hoc meeting let's go and then he inquired of them and then when they told him this is what he does herod summoned in verse seven herod summons the wise men secretly to ascertain from what time they saw the star so now he's plotting when did you actually see the star appear so what does this mean herod believes that jesus christ was born Otherwise, why would you do that? If someone goes, "Oh yeah, 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 I saw the star. I'm from Iran. I came all the way to Jerusalem, and we believe that the King of the Jews was born." Like, okay, okay, go, go, go home, crazy. Like I'm not gonna believe you. But if I meet with you secretly, okay, let's meet around 1 a.m. And um, it's just because I have such a busy schedule, guys. So I want to invite all of you this caravan. You guys are amazing, so good looking. Oh man, I love the colors that you bring in your caravan. Nice nice rides, it's very hot. I want you to come to my palace by 1 a.m. because I'm so busy and let's talk. This is what he did. He goes, what time, what year, what month did you see the star? So what does that mean? He believed them. And then he goes, go and search diligently for the child. When you have found him, Bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And this kills me because there is somebody that knows and believes that Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, is born. And his reaction is, I got to get rid of him because I want to stay on this throne. Someone truer, someone better, someone who deserves the throne has come. And when I'm so used to being in control of my own life, if anything tries to disturb it, I don't care who it is. It could be God Himself, the creator of the universe who comes, but I'm going to kill him, is what happens. I said there are two characters that Matthew contrasts, two characters that we must understand. And who are we? I'm gonna give you a hint. We're not Jesus. We're not Jesus. Who is on the throne? Who is in control of your life? There's a famous quote that said, people want salvation. So when you hear Yeshua, when you hear Emmanuel, like, yeah, Yeshua, Emmanuel, and you get hyped and you get excited. People want the salvation God offers, but they don't want to submit to the God of that salvation. The tighter you hold on, The more you'll see, the more horrific acts, dangerous, terrible things that you will do. What will you do them out of? Out of desperation to hold on to the throne. Even if it's for one more millisecond, I'll do what it takes. It starts out with secret meetings, but where does it end? Ends with killing babies, innocent babies that just happened to be born at the same time Jesus was. Last point is worship. So in this contrast, we see the Magi moving, and they go, okay, Bethlehem. But as soon as they come out, they see the star again. And this word worship, we understand, is important. Why? Because it occurs three times in verse 2, verse 8, verse 11. Worship knew. And then what the Magi knew was this. The Magi knew that on the throne was not themselves. This is what they understood. These are outsiders. Outsiders. They're not even characters that the people cared about. But the outside people, they knew that on the throne was not themselves. They weren't the kings. It's not we three kings. It's just we people who need to find a king was not themselves. It was Jesus. Look how much they wanted to find Jesus. And I want to tell you again, where does that initiate from? How does it get stirred? It gets stirred up by the Lord, by the Holy Spirit. This is all throughout the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, wherever it is. And we see it's initiated by God. And then there's a stirring in the heart. I need more. It doesn't matter if you're a Hindu, if you're a Buddhist, it doesn't matter where you're from. There's a stirring in your heart that's saying, I need more than what the world has to offer. Look how much they wanted to find Jesus. In verse 10, when the star reappeared, after they left Herod's temple, when the star reappeared, it says this word, uh, these words, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Redundant much? Redundant much? It's like, I was so happy, I was happy. This is how joyous they were that they found the star again. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And this is how much they wanted to worship Jesus. Greg Beal writes this, what people reveal, revere, excuse me, what people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or restoration. What people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or res- restoration. And we see that throughout scripture, it's about worshipers. We were made to worship. So what are we worshiping? And when we worship God correctly the way he intends when he's initiated by, by him and we go through, whoa, this is the Lord's leading, there is a joy because God is a God of joy, right? When we see other objects and affections that we are starting to worship, something else happens in us. And this is what I've realized. We are the media that we consume. I actually wanted to write that on Facebook. It's like, yeah, that's not that smart. It just sounds smart to me. But, so I didn't write it. I just want to play humble on Facebook, so I only share uh, jokes. But, um, but this is the line that I would like to share. We are the media that we consume. We are the media. What is the media that you consume? If all you look, and I think it's very easy now to really just kind of hone it. It used to be, and Korea was like this too, but America was the same. Everybody can kind of come together on one common thing. So in the 60s, if you, if you saw like Leave it to Beaver or something like, uh, a show like that, or Honeymooners, people would come together and just talk about what Jackie Gleason did. Many of you have no idea what I'm talking about, but it's all good, it's all good. You're like, what? This is when TV was black and white, and it's all, there was a time like that. That's when I lived and then they inserted color. God just said, let there be color. And then now here we are. But in Korea, it was the same. There was just one kind of media, uh, and people would just gather around the media. So we would see clumps of culture just kind of uniform. And you know, if this person was famous in Korea in the 90s, then everybody knew them in Korea. Uh, it was famous in the like H.O.T. Uh, and everybody wanted their hair like that. And I grew up in my front bangs like this. And I looked really foolish because my hair grew out, so it looked like I had like, uh, big hair this way and two bangs here, and it looked terrible. And then I heard my other brother did that, and he probably looked real good, right? So some people could pull it off, and I couldn't. But people would just consume one media, and everybody tried to be like that. But now, what is the, what is the media that we consume? Everybody consumes what they want to consume, and they think they're being independent. But what it is, you're just becoming more entrenched in your own initial views. No one's challenging it. See the likes that you have and the follows that you have. Uh, look at your Instagram page if you are. Then you follow a certain kind of people group. And if, you, you're, if you're into modeling or athletics, you just follow beautiful people. Guess what? The pictures that you take, the selfies that you put up are all mimicking that. They all, all, all you're doing is looking at each other and just mimicking each other. And that's what basically Beal is talking about worship. The I like my mind, my heart, my soul, my intellect is going into this. That's what worship is. And I become like that. But if I become like that, what is what happens to my spirit? It becomes more deteriorated. It becomes more despicable. I become more and more insecure. Where was Herod looking? He wasn't looking to the star. He was looking to himself. He was looking to his throne. And he was like, This is gonna, this is gonna disappear? I can't look like this anymore? Who has to die? So that I could keep it for one more second. When we start to worship God. God is the one that transforms our minds. And we start becoming conformed to the image of Christ, which is beyond ourselves, beyond what anything the world has to offer. Look at Colossians 3.10, and that's exactly what it is. But when we we commit the act of idolatry, our heart starts worshiping a created image, an image that's conformed to the world. And the world has this twistedness about it. The world has this darkness about it, and we start conforming to that. And we see here that in this process, while this is happening, the world is becoming more and more twisted, We see God is not conforming to that process. God inserts himself, and we see that here in this story, saying you want to worship something better than what's in the world. You want to not just worship what is created. You want to worship the creator. So where would you set your eyes? And he uses these magi who look up to heaven and see God is actually in control of everything. So they come with exceedingly great joy, Rejoicing, and they worship God. They bring their gifts, and they bring all that they have, and they bow prostrate, and they give the true king worship. Worship. We'll try to define that word just according, just in these verses, these 12 verses. What is worship? If you look and study, worship would be following in joy the leading of God to Christ. What is worship when we just look at this passage with the three verses that actually said the word worship? Worship is following in joy the leading of God to Christ. So the questions here that I want to leave with is, is in your worship, in your worship, meaning the things that you are devoted to, are you following the leading of God? Number two, in your worship, in the things that you are devoted to, Are you joyful? Is there joy in your life? Not just any kind of like, "Mm, this feels good. I like this song today. Is there exceeding joy? Number three, third question is, in your worship, are you being led to Christ? Christ. Go back to that question. In your worship, are you following the leading of God? And we see that the way God leads us is through Scripture and by His Holy Spirit. It's by Scripture and by His Holy Spirit. And that's why we look to the Word. In your worship, are you joyful? We know that God gives to us joyfully. So guess what? We can respond joyfully. Jesus Christ, the joy set before him, endured suffering on the cross. He was looking to joy. So this is why G.K. Chesterton said, you know what? For the world, we have suffering and then happiness or joy is peripheral. But suffering and just that, that kind of evil is center because there's a hopelessness about it. But for the Christian, joy is central. And suffering is peripheral Meaning there is something that we look toward that we can hold on to that is sturdy, that is sure. Because Jesus Christ wasn't just some kind of enigmatic spirit just floating around. We got to kind of pick up the pieces here and there. There is an actual biography, four of them, written, witness accounts of the person, the historical person of Jesus Christ who did live and walk on this earth. And for the joy set before him, he died he rose again and claims lordship over our lives. How joyful are you in your worship? We can be joyful because the God that we worship is joyful. How does He give you gifts and grace? Do you think when He gives us gifts, He's like, Ugh, "You haven't been that good, Joe. Like you didn't even you just went, came for pizza." So, <laughs> ah, or does He? bless you, and give you things that you didn't even deserve, experiences, friendships, beyond what you could have imagined because God joyfully gives to his children. In your worship, how joyful are you? We can be joyful because the God that we worship is a joyful God. In your worship, are you being led to Christ? We become more like him as we worship him. That's why we should be excited to gather. Man, I love gathering here in this church. Because as I love you, as I study the word, what we recognize is we're becoming more like Jesus Christ. I want to end off with this. Spiritual journey is a discipline. And um, I went to a wedding this past weekend. I was talking with someone in the bridal party. Encouraging this brother to go back to church, right? And um, we said, spiritual journey. I said, spiritual journey is a discipline. And this is true because disciplines are difficult. Disciplines are difficult. But we have mistaken difficulty as incompatible with joy. This is untrue. This is a lie. We have to get this out of our heads. Convenience isn't compatible with joy. In fact, most times convenience leads us to more bitterness and less satisfaction let's be real here if you want to study if you want to increase in your intellectual discipline is it easy especially if you haven't read books in 30 years and all of a sudden i have to read books there's a great book that i want you to read it's called pilgrim's progress and i want you to read that and love it and like boom is it easy if you haven't read a book at all but guess what? If you want to enjoy how good this book is, then don't you have to increase in your discipline? What about physical? Everybody says, I'm on a diet. No one here is on a diet. I, I, just everybody. I say, oh, but today's cheat day. I, I know because this is exactly what I say. It's like, oh, are you on a diet? It's like, yes, and today is cheat day. <laughs> but every day is basically that. But... If you really wanna be physically fit, strong, healthy, mature, whatever it is, isn't it a discipline? How is it the first time you go to exercise, run or go to the gym or whatever it is, the first time you hate it? Your body's yelling at you. Why are you doing this to me? But why do you do it? Because you realize that this discipline, even though it's difficult, Brings joy in the end. This is a truth that God is showing us through every single dimension of his creation. Physical, intellectual, let's even go emotional. If you just watch K-drama all day, what's going to happen? You're going to hate random Korean people for no reason. That he looks like that scoundrel in that cage. I'm like, no, I'm just kidding. But what's going to happen is emotionally you will be molded just like the writers. And guess what they write? They write material that get you hooked. What hooks you? Hooks you. Feelings of fake euphoria. Meaning, oh, I feel good about that. Which is not true love, by the way. And secondly, anger. This guy gets me so angry. Episode two. You know, that kind of thing. So, But if you want to be emotionally disciplined, what do we do? Guess what we do? We practice with each other. We practice loving each other, sacrificing for one another, giving of ourselves to each other. But most most importantly, the spiritual discipline is a discipline, and God gives it to us, and he shows us that this is a joy that we can do because he's the one that initiates it, and he's the one that leads us. Even though the journey's difficult, the caravan is rough because they have to trek hundreds of miles. And it's very dangerous. That's why I think there were many people in this caravan because if it was just three, they probably would have died. And so there are many people in this caravan because it was so dangerous, but they knew that this discipline, this trick will be worth it because they get to see the King of Kings. They get to see who's really on the throne and they're excited for it, rejoice to it exceedingly with great joy. So, when we get together, what are we practicing? We're actually practicing all four disciplines, meaning, even if you hang out with me long enough, we'll hit the gym together. I'm saying, like, all disciplines because this is how God made us, but most importantly, spiritual discipline. We sing truths when we sing songs. We listen to the word of God in worship, but it does something. It connects us with our Savior. There's the answer that our heart has been yearning for, and it's finally fulfilled in worshiping the true Savior. Worship is about connecting and having a relationship with the savior and this is why we gather let's pray lord we thank you for the word that you've given us today and we pray that you would now initiate and stir in our hearts an affection and passion for your name and those that whose, whose hearts have been stirred that you would lead us into salvation you would lead us to christ And now as we gather together, Lord, encourage your people for we are people in desperate need of a Savior. And we know that it's you that have come to save your people from their sins. So as we submit to you, Lord, Holy Spirit, do a work in us this very moment. Change us so that we don't walk out the same. Change us so that we will walk out knowing now I have to walk in this discipline let's pray and as we pray together I want to pray and ask that as you now heard the word of the Lord pray that the Holy Spirit will convict your hearts and will change your minds renew it transform it so that you become more like Jesus Christ our loving Savior let's pray